So grab your Bibles, uh, Luke 4, we're going to read all of Luke 4 and then the first 11 verses uh, in uh, Luke 5 as well. If you want to grab a Bible, just come grab one here or get, put your hand up and Stu will bring one down to you as well. Quite a long section but there's some good stuff happening there, then Paul's going to come and read uh, to us. So uh, Luke 4, we read together. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to the high place and showed him uh, in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only named the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up at once 
and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each one of them, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them, but he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boats to come and help them, and they came and filled their boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Thanks, John. Thanks, everyone, for hanging in there for the text. I think it's helpful. They're all very familiar stories, but I think it's helpful to hear it flow through together because I think you're going to... Today is really not about breaking it down verse by verse, but it's about understanding the start of Jesus' ministry and how it all sits together with stories that other, and narratives we're otherwise quite familiar with. Now, before we get started, let's just pray quickly. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that are in it. We thank you for the life of Jesus Christ, his ministry on this earth. And Lord, we pray that you'll... Speak to us right now that you open our hearts and help and help us to understand what you want to say to each of us individually this morning through your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, when I was reflecting on this, um, this fairly large chunk of um, the Gospel of Luke that we've been working through, there was a principle that kept coming to mind. And the principle is this, that when we pursue something of value, the path there will rarely be straightforward or without its challenges. And I think that principle resonated with me because there was a particular time in my life uh, where I experienced the truth of that principle. And it actually involved my wedding proposal. Now, you're going to be part of a very select few which are letting into the inner sanctum of which I'm telling this wedding proposal. So you and the rest of the planet that decides to download this online, but I'll put that out of my mind for the time being. See, I'd been praying for this moment for quite a while, and I thought, now surely is the time. I went out, I sought permission, which was reluctantly given by John. Um, <laughs> went out, bought the ring, and uh, I'd organized for us to go on a trip uh, to visit some friends of ours, Dean and Lynette, who actually attend this congregation in New Zealand. And I had a road trip that was all organized, and we unexpectedly uh, were going out. It was quite a nice day. All things were going to plan. Had the ring all set. Things were looking good. Unexpectedly, though, the conversation went in a direction which, shall we say, wasn't really in a marriage direction. And I thought, all of a sudden, I found myself scrambling around for a backup plan. Came back to Melbourne. I think John and Flynn are a bit like, 
Interesting. I haven't heard any news just yet. A um, couple of months passed, and I thought it was time to give it another go. So in all my wisdom, I decided to take her skydiving. She cried. I evacuated to the nearest beach with a romantic picnic lunch. Turned out to be a nudist beach. <laughs> Went for a fairly long walk, desperately trying to find an extra location because I, kept, I always thought to myself, I can't be that guy who proposed on a nudist beach. <laughs> Found out that she was short of breath and started complaining that she was going to get stuck in peak hour traffic. Went to a lookout, thought maybe this is a spot. People were everywhere. Walked to what felt like the farthest part in Victoria, and finally it seemed like there was a brief window of opportunity, and I thought, if I don't take this, I could still be trying to propose this girl in my retirement. So I did, and thankfully she said yes. What did I learn from that saga? Well, when we pursue something of value, rarely is the path there straightforward. <laughs> rarely is it without its challenges. Now, in Luke chapter 4 and a little bit of chapter 5, we don't have wedding proposals, we don't have skydivings, and we certainly don't have a nudist speech. But what we're at is a great juncture in Jesus' life where he is about to launch his ministry and he is about to start pursuing the plan which God had for him ever since the beginning of creation, a plan which is of incredible value. He's about to kickstart his whole plan and purpose that God had for him on his life. It's all starting here in chapter 4. And as you can imagine, that start was not straightforward. And the journey which he found himself on very quickly was not without its challenges right from the outset. But what we find in today's passage is it's not just about the challenges that he faced and therefore the challenges that we will similarly face when we follow Christ. We also find a reminder about the purpose that we have in Christ and also the promise that we can hold on to in Christ. For it's only, I think, when we remain fixed on God's ultimate purpose for our life, and when we hold on to the promises that we find in his word, that even though the path that follows Christ, even though the pursuit of Christ may not be straightforward, and it may not be without its challenges, it's ultimately, we know, the only path that's worth pursuing. So with that being said, let's work through today's passage as we reflect on, one, the challenge, two, the purpose, and three, the promise that we have when we pursue Christ. Now, straight away at the beginning of chapter 4, there's a very familiar part of the narrative where Jesus says he's led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, where he fasted and was tempted for 40 days. And unsurprisingly, it says at the end of that time he was hungry. I mean, I go a couple of hours without food. I start to feel a little bit peckish. Jesus is going an extended period of time here. But the important point is not that he's hungry. That would be to be expected. The the intention behind that statement is, I think, to emphasize the fact that this is a physically draining and challenging time for Jesus. And it's at that point in the narrative that the author focuses on three specific encounters that he has with the evil one, being Satan himself. Now, first of all, Satan seeks to take advantage of Jesus' physical struggles. He says, well, you're the son of man. You're hungry. Why don't you just turn the stone into bread? He encouraged Jesus to make himself a little bit more comfortable, to make things a little bit easier for himself. To which Jesus simply quotes back scripture uh, at him and says, look, it's God that's going to sustain me, not bread. His physical struggles weren't a concern to Jesus because he knew God was more important and he was the one that was going to provide for his needs. It wasn't for him to take matters into his own hands. Was it for him to make life a little bit more easy? So Satan tries a different tact. 
He encourages Jesus to take an easier road than the one that God had laid out before him. He moves away from a focus on physical struggles to the path that God had set before Jesus. See, what he did is he took Jesus up where he could see all of the kingdoms. And he offered Jesus, you remember, all splendor and authority. And Satan says, if you worship me, then I can give all of this to you. Now, it's interesting because remember, at the beginning, since the beginning of creation, Jesus had all splendor and authority. He ruled over all kingdoms. Everything was created by him and through him. He's the son of God. But Jesus had asked him to relinquish all of that and to come down and be born as a baby boy, the son of a lowly carpenter, to take up position of a servant. A, a role that would ultimately lead to rejection, would ultimately lead to suffering, as we heard of it in communion, would ultimately lead to the crucifixion. And Satan says, you know what, don't worry about that pathway. I'll take you right back up to where you belong. Don't worry about this road that God's got you going on. I'll take you right back up and give you all splendor and authority. And Jesus says, quote scripture again, he says, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. God's purposes for me are the only ones I'm interested in. The only pathway back to glory that I'm interested in is the one that God has for me. Even if ultimately that means the cross. I'm not interested in an easier road. Lastly, Satan seeks to twist scripture. And it says he takes Jesus to Jerusalem and and he stands him on the top of the temple And he says, well, you're the son of God, throw yourself off. And because you're the son of God, look at what it says in scriptures, an army of angels will come down and will swoop to your aid. Why not give it a go? See, here Satan was trying to get Jesus to use his position for his own personal gain. And it's interesting, in doing that, there was a traditional Jewish expectation that the Messiah would come standing on the top of the temple. And by jumping off and having this miraculous sign where angels would come out to him, all of a sudden it was like he was announcing and fulfilling this expectation and announcing his arrival in this miraculous fashion. But that was never really God's intention, was it? That was never how God intended Jesus to announce his arrival. Instead, God's intention was that people would see what Jesus taught, that people would see what Jesus said, that they would see the way he lived and they would believe. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas? You've seen something miraculous and you've believed. You've seen that I've died and risen again and now you believe. Blessed are all those who haven't seen the miraculous, but they still believe. That was always God's plan. He says again, Jesus saying here to Satan, I'm not interested in your alternative pathway. I'm not interested in your easier options. I'm only interested in God's plan and purpose for my life. You know, I can't help but see these encounters as a bit of a trial run for the cross. See, Satan knew that he couldn't overcome Jesus by power. So all he could actually do was to try and lure him away from the cross, to try and drag him away from that purpose and plan that God had for his life. So he says, don't worry about suffering, just have some bread, make yourself comfortable. Don't worry about the cross. Let me just return you to glory. It'll be a lot easier. Don't worry about the rejection by man. Just announce your arrival like everyone's expecting. Don't worry about God's plan. There's an easier road. There's a better road. Just trust me. Church, we should expect exactly the same treatment. 
exactly the same messages to filter into our mind and our hearts. That's the way Satan likes to work. In Luke 9.23, Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself daily, must similarly take up the cross and follow me, follow my lead, follow my example. We're called to the same life of self-sacrifice. We're called to the same life of submission to God. We're called to the same life where we endure hardships and opposition for the sake of the gospel. And the way Satan attacks that purpose is to try and drag us away from what God intends for our life, to try and lure us away from the way he wants us to live, from the way God wants us to live. In light of that reality, we should always be asking ourselves, in what ways might Satan be trying to do that in my life? Might he be trying to lure me away from living the way God wants me to live and to living out his plan and purpose for our lives? It can be by simply shifting our priorities from service to something that's a little bit more comfortable. It can be replacing time with God with time with uh, entertainment and computers and music and, and our jobs and social media and the like. It can be by keeping our mouth closed rather than being willing to open it for the gospel. See, the more we seek to pursue Christ, the more Satan will try and lure us away from him to make our lives a little bit easier, to make our lives just a little bit less different, to make our lives just a little bit less challenging, to make our lives a little bit more about us and a little bit less about God. And if that's not challenging enough, that's just verses 1 to 12. In verses 13 to 30, we see that, Satan, uh, that Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, he wasn't just attacked spiritually by Satan. He was rejected and opposed physically by the people around him. See, Jesus then returns to his hometown in Galilee, and he starts to teach in the synagogues, and people speak very highly of him. They're quite impressed with what he's saying. He speaks with authority. And Jesus goes to Nazareth. Okay, Nazareth is a place of his birth. This is his hometown. This is, if you expect to be accepted anywhere, it's generally where you're born. Yeah, I remember when I used to, I watched a lot of cricket and I always thought Ricky Ponting was interesting because he was an amazing cricketer, but outside of Tasmania, he was always like, yeah, that's Ricky Ponting. But if you go to Tasmania, it's like there's the Ricky Ponting everything because it's his hometown, it's his own patch and they love him there. And Jesus is returning to his hometown here. You expect him to be braced with open arms and they ask him to speak. And so they open up a scroll, they turn to Isaiah. And they quote this scripture, or Jesus reads this scripture from Isaiah 61. And I'll read it out again. This is Jesus reading to the people of Nazareth. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He reads that passage, and then he sits down. And he tells them that that passage is then fulfilled in them hearing it. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, that, that was a messianic text. That was a text that described the role of Messiah, that he would come and that he would be a person who would free people from their slavery. He would provide sight to the blind. He would raise up the afflicted and he would proclaim the coming of God's kingdom. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one who's been given that role. This passage is fulfilled in what I'm about to do. This is my plan. This is God's plan and purpose for my life. 
Now, how do they respond to that idea? Well, at first they're amazed at how he's teaching the scriptures, but then it's like these shadows of a doubt start to creep in and they ask question, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't he just born in Nazareth? There's nothing special about this person. I haven't seen anything miraculous about his arrival. There's nothing to show that he's any better than you or I, even though Satan had encouraged Jesus to demonstrate that just earlier on in chapter 4. And it's like Jesus picks up on this hesitation. And so he starts a reflection. And this reflection, he says, you know, there's been a lot of Old Testament prophets that have preached in their hometown about a message from God. And often that's been rejected and instead has been accepted by outsiders. And he gives the examples of Elisha and Elijah. And the implication now is I'm preaching God's message in my hometown and my hometown won't listen to me. And so it's going to be others which will accept the message of God's salvation, not you. Understandably, they get a little bit upset by that notion, and so they drive Jesus out of town, they take him to a cliff, and they try to throw him off a cliff. But Jesus speaks them calmly, and he walks straight back through the crowd. Through the crowd. Now, as if Jesus hadn't gotten off to a challenging start already, being in the wilderness, being tempted to 40 days, being taunted by Satan himself, now he goes to his hometown and they drive him out of town and they try to throw him off a cliff. Right from the start, this was typical of the entirety of Jesus' ministry, that he would be attacked spiritually and that he would be rejected by people around him who would not accept the truth of the gospel. But yet Jesus always remained faithful to God's call. And what Jesus does now is he asks us to take up our own cross and to follow his lead. Even though spiritual attack might follow and even though rejection might follow, yet we are to remain faithful to God's call. So if you're anything like me, you start to go, why would I sign up to that? It might be no secret that the Christian walk is not an easy road that there will be challenges at both a spiritual and a physical level, that there will be an opposition and attack that comes in different forms, why would I sign up for that? Where's the selling point? And I think the answer to that lies in the purpose and the promise that we then see in the remainder of chapter 4 and the start of chapter 5. See, Jesus then moves from Nazareth to Capernaum and he starts to teach in their synagogues. And then there's a man that he's confronted with And he's possessed by an evil spirit. And he says, ha, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus calmly tells the evil spirit to be quiet and to leave the person. And he does. And it says the person is unharmed. And you can imagine word then starts to spread. All of a sudden, people start to think, okay, this is someone who not only speaks with authority from the scriptures, but he says things and evil spirits, the spiritual realm, does exactly what he says. All of a sudden, his, his word of Jesus starts to filter through. But then he goes on to show that he didn't just demonstrate control over the spiritual, he demonstrated control over the physical as well. He goes to Simon Peter's mother-in-law's place, who is sick with a fever. And he doesn't just give her a Panadol or an aspirin. It says that he, tends to, he, he leans over her and rebukes the fever or tells the fever to leave. And it does. But interestingly, it's not just that the fever leaves. Her temperature doesn't just come down a bit. It's like she's completely healed. Because all of a sudden she jumps up and she starts waiting on people. 
She starts fulfilling the roles that she otherwise would have been if she'd been well. This woman had been completely healed. And then word starts to spread again about the power that this person has and the sick and the diseased and the damage to musical instruments come from all over the town to see Jesus. Was that a good segue? They come from everywhere. I better get out of this because I keep knocking it over. So word is spreading throughout everywhere and they bring all of their diseased and their sick and they want to see Jesus and he starts to heal them and he starts to speak to the evil spirits again and to keep them under control. He's demonstrating he has complete control over both the spiritual and the physical. Now this was the opening bounce of Jesus' ministry. This is like the first quarter. This is where he's just getting started, okay? He's just launching. He's come, he's now a grown man. He's been baptized by John the Baptist. He's been commissioned by the Holy Spirit. He's been endorsed by his Father in heaven. He's been tempted and taunted and attacked by people and by Satan. But now he's like, you know what? I'm just going to start. I'm going to get into this purpose which Jesus has for me. And that purpose was ultimately one about transformation. It was about changing people's lives. It was about making them into something new so that they would never look back and they would never be the same again. In a word, this ministry was about seeing people's lives redeemed. And that's what we see here in the back end of chapter 4. People are being redeemed. Now, what do I mean by that word redeemed? It means to be set free. Jesus met people in their point of need. Whether that was a form of spiritual need in their possession or whether it was a form of physical need in illness and disease, he met people in their point of need and he set them free. He provided life and he provided healing and he provided a new start and he changed people from inside out because that was the heart of Jesus' ministry from chapter 4 all the way through to the end. That was what he was always about. And he's setting the tone here right at the opening bounce of his ministry. Remember what he read out in Isaiah? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. I have been sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. I have been sent to give sight to the blind, to release the oppressed. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He's providing freedom and he's releasing people who are oppressed by conditions that they could not do anything about themselves. Now, many of you will know that my family recently spent a large part of town time in the um, pediatric ward of Monash Children's Hospital. And I remember around 2 or 3 a.m. one morning, um, the hours kind of blur when you're in that place. I finally managed to get Zachary settled and asleep as he was recovering from surgery. And I thought... I just need to get out of here and go for a walk. And I remember walking down around the ward a little bit. And you look around and you see, um, you saw, you heard all these kids groaning who were clearly uncomfortable. I remember seeing others who were hooked up to all sorts of machines. I remember seeing um, like teenage girls who were with disorders who, who had been hospitalized. And I saw drained parents who were like trying to sleep at the, at the foot of their kids' beds. And I remember just being struck with how, how vulnerable and broken and lost we are. Man, I said I wouldn't do this two times in a row. I just remember being struck by how without God there just isn't any hope. You know? We go through stuff and I remember being thinking, how do people do this without God? 
You know, we're just such a vulnerable and mortal and broken people. And I I see this little snapshot here in chapter 4 where people are stuck with these conditions and their problems that they can't fix themselves. And they're bringing them to Jesus in their point of need and he's meeting them at that point of need and he's redeeming them. He's bringing life and healing and forgiveness to them in their situation. And you see it physically in their illnesses and their possession being, being cured, but you know it's about something deeper, isn't it? Jesus' ministry was always about something deeper. It was about seeing not just the physical change, but to see hearts changed. And that's the biblical narrative we have from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. They're right from the start, man turned their back on God. They were entrapped and they were enslaved by this condition of sin that they could do nothing about. And right from day one, God had a plan of redemption. That through the person, Jesus Christ, who would come long later, he would redeem people's hearts from that sin. He would set them free. He would give sight to the blind. He would give freedom to those who were oppressed. He would give people a new start and a new existence. He would change people's hearts so for the first time they could experience life to the full. And that's a narrative that went from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And that's the purpose that was for Jesus from day one. And that's the purpose Satan tried to lure him away from. But that's the purpose that we see kick-started here in chapter 4. It was a ministry of true redemption. A healing that's not just of our bodies, but of our hearts and of our souls. And that was God's redemptive plan right from the start. And it's a redemptive plan that he had right through Jesus' life. And it's the purpose that we have in Christ. To be part of that same redemptive plan. That's our purpose. You know, there might be challenges that come when we pursue Christ, but there's a purpose that overrides those challenges. And that purpose is being part of seeing people's lives and hearts and souls and minds redeemed. You know, it's interesting, in verse 42, we find Jesus in a solitary place. And people meet him there in that solitary place. And it says they try to prevent him from leaving. They want to keep him to themselves. But Jesus says in verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of the God I must preach this message of redemption. I must go about this gospel work. I must do it in the other towns also, for that is why I was sent. I love that because it reminds us that this good news of Jesus Christ, this good news of redemption, was never meant for a solitary place. It was never meant for, by that I mean it was never meant to be kept within four walls or to be kept within one location or within a select group of people. It was always meant to be shared within all of the other towns. It was always meant to be shared with whoever would listen, that they would know that there is life in Jesus, that they would know that there is hope in Jesus, that they would know that there is peace and love and forgiveness and eternity and a redemption in Jesus Christ, and that without Jesus, there is none of those things. That was God's purpose, and it was never meant to be kept within a solitary place. It was always meant to be shared with all the other towns, with anyone who's going to listen. God's plan is too big for a solitary place. It's too big. It's about Judah, Samaria, the ends of the earth, all the other towns, everywhere, everywhere. Now we need to start asking how we can better be 
start being part of God's purpose, God's redemptive purpose, how in our lives we can start being intentional about who represents those other towns to us that we can start sharing Jesus with. What ministries can we be part of where we can start seeing Jesus at work? Now we should be praying about what that redemptive plan might look like for us. And as we look to share Jesus with others, it's also important to ask ourselves, how do we need to experience God's redemptive grace personally? You know, because we, we all have diseases of the heart. We all have conditions of sinfulness, battles of the mind that we can't overcome ourselves. We all need Jesus to meet us in our points of need. And what we learn from chapter 4 is that Jesus is able and willing to do that. And when he meets us in that point of need, he provides us with healing and life and forgiveness. For he has power over all things. He has control over all things. He died to forgive all things. And in him, all things can be made new. Amen? All things can be made new. Both our own hearts and the hearts of the people in all the other towns. But what I love then about touching on chapter 5 is that we're not just left with a challenge and a purpose. We're left with a promise that we can hold on to. See, Jesus then stands in front of a lake and he continues to teach people. He teaches them from a boat. And at the end of this, he says to Simon Peter, go out to the deep water, go get some fish. He says, look, I've been trying to do that all night and I haven't gotten any fish. My nets keep coming back empty. But because you've asked me to do it, look, I'll give it another go. And all of a sudden, they find that their nets are filled. They're so filled that they find that the boats begin to sink. They're astonished by this catch of fish. And so we, we hear that Simon Peter then, he throws himself at Jesus' feet and he says, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. And what's interesting is the way Jesus responds to him. He responds by saying two things. Firstly, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of your sinfulness. Don't be afraid of your shortcomings. Don't be afraid of your inadequacies. I'm going to die for those things. They don't matter to me. I know you're sinful. It doesn't matter. I'm going to deal with that. Don't be afraid. Second thing he says is, from now on, you're going to catch men. You will be fishers of men. In other words, just like your boats have overflowed with fish that have been drawn into your nets, so your lives from this point forward will be filled with people who are drawn into the life-changing and, reality and redeeming gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like your nets have been filled with fish, so from now on your lives will be filled with people who are drawn into the life-changing and redeeming gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting in what Jesus says is the language. Because one thing you notice is there's no conditions attached to it. He doesn't say, if you live a perfect life and, and, and do all the right things, then you will be a fisher of men. There's no conditions that attach to it. It's an unconditional statement. And it's also not a command. He doesn't say, be fishers of men, as if we need to figure out how to do that somehow. We need to do it in our own strength. There's no element of command or condition. This is a, this is a promise. He says, you will be fishers of men. It's, an abs- it's a statement of absolute certainty. It's an unconditional and irrevocable promise. And Jesus can make that promise 
to Simon Peter with absolute assurance because he knows, Jesus knows that he's the one who's ultimately going to do the work. He's the one who's going to change people's lives. He's the one who's going to draw them in. He's the one who's going to equip and train these disciples. He's the one who's going to give them the words to say. He's the one who's going to create the opportunities. And he's the one who's going to go about fulfilling this redemptive plan. And so when Jesus looks at Peter, he can promise with absolute confidence that he will be a fisher of men because Jesus will turn him into a fisher of men. He says, don't worry about your sinfulness. Don't be afraid of your shortcomings. I'm going to make something of you. I'm going to turn you into a kingdom worker. After all, Jesus effectively made the same promise to him later on when he says, I will build my church. It's another promise. I've got this. I'm the one who's going to do it. But I'll turn you into part of that story. You know, it's interesting how they then respond. They leave everything behind, everything of material value, everything that was comfortable to them, and it says they followed him. And the principle there is enormously significant, isn't it? That when we agree to leave everything behind, when we submit everything to Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel and his redemptive plan, the promise is that he will turn us into a worker for his kingdom. He will do a work in us and in the people around us. He will equip us. He will give us the words to say. He will change our hearts and he will change the hearts of others as he draws them into their gospel net, as they find themselves part of the gospel story as they experience the redeeming love of Jesus Christ. Praise God that when it comes to being part of his purpose for our lives and when it comes to facing up to his challenges, it is always about God's grace rather than our strength. It is always about God's grace rather than our strength. You know, today's culture will tell you that if you try hard enough, you can do anything. Today's culture will tell you That if you think hard enough, if you think smart enough, if you study hard enough, if you invest well enough, if you're from the right family, if you make the right decisions, if you make good choices, then you can do anything. But the gospel message is really the reverse. The gospel says that when we seek to do anything of eternal value in our own strength, our nets come back empty. Come back empty. But, when we leave everything behind, when we submit it to our loving Lord Saviour, then Jesus promises to add the increase. Our nets come back full. You know, today's passage, we've got a lot to think about. We've been reminded of the challenge of following Christ, that our life will be filled with spiritual attack and opposition and rejection. But then we've been refocused on the purpose that we have in Jesus Christ, that we can be part of his redemptive plan. We can be part of seeing lives and hearts changed. And as part of that purpose, we have a promise. We have a promise to hold on to that no matter how many times we may fall short, no matter how inadequate we might feel, God will add the increase. He will turn us into a worker for his kingdom. He will provide the fruit. And our role, therefore, is to not be put off by the challenge, but to remain focused on the purpose and to hold on to the promise. For God will build his church. His kingdom will be established. 
his redemptive plan will reach fulfillment. It's going to happen. He will build his church. His kingdom will come. And even though the road there may not be straightforward, may not go the way we expect it to pan out, what we can realize is that his kingdom and his purposes are ultimately the only thing that's worth pursuing. It's the only thing that's worth it. It might be hard, it might be tough, it might be not straightforward, it might be challenging, but it's the only thing of value. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have a plan and a purpose for our life, Lord. We thank you that you have promised that we can be part of the redemptive plan, that you will turn us into workers for your kingdom. Lord, we thank you that even though challenges might come our way, we know that we can overcome those challenges through you, that we can overcome those challenges and be part of a bigger narrative where we see people's lives made new, where we see people's hearts changed, where we see people's sin forgiven, where we see people drawn into the life-changing reality of the gospel. Lord, may you remind each of us how we can be better part of that purpose this morning and how we can hold on to the promises you give us so that we know that our faith and our assurance is always in you and that you are good and that you are worthy and that you are trustworthy and that you will build our church, Lord, and that you give us the privilege of coming along for the journey. Lord, may we drop everything and pursue you. In Jesus' name, amen.